welcome to the Coach Steve Clark Show, where he will encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents who will in turn motivate and help others to promote the great game of tennis, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, Steve Clark. Hello, everyone. This is Steve Clark, and thanks so much for tuning in to the show. Today, I get to talk to another really good friend and uh, collegiate tennis colleague of mine, uh, John Nelson. I can guarantee you, you've never heard a podcast like this since both John and I have been involved not only in college coaching for many years, um, but uh, his uh, we're both involved in martial arts and his uh, different, different arts, but nonetheless, uh, same principles. And his recent book, Sensei Tennis, Martial Arts and More and the Mastery of Tennis, uh, will guide our conversation this afternoon. Um, and I trust you'll enjoy the many connections and teaching points, whether you're a player, a parent, a coach, or whether you have any experience in the martial arts or not. I know I've had several players that came into my program that were you know, heavily involved in martial arts. I'm sure John has, and many of them get involved afterwards. But the main thing is what we what we bring and what John brings to the court and to mentoring young men um, and people uh, based on some of those principles. We'll delve into the mental, technical, and tactical side of tennis. And as listeners, I'm certain there will be a lot of aha moments today. Uh, and I'm looking forward to getting started. So, uh, John, thanks for taking time to come on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I appreciate you having me on your show. You do a great job with your podcast. Well, good. Now, you're, you're recently retired, so I'll go into a little bit of John's bio, but he was at Hawaii for, uh, was it 10 years or 16? 16, 16 Six. years. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Aloha, mahalo. <laughs> Aloha. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll go in reverse today. A lot of times I start in bios, and I say I start out when they were a kid, and I go off to current. I'm going to go kind of reverse a little bit. Um, John was uh, a nationally respected coach for some 40 years or so with stints at Hawaii, San Diego State, UC Davis, and Cal State University Hayward. He amassed numerous conference championships, trips to the NCAA for his players and his teams. Uh, he was a 10-time, at least, a conference coach of the year, a three-time regional coach of the year, and even a national coach of the year to go along with a, a team championship he had. He coached, coached numerous All-Americans under his tutelage, and one of them, Alex Vasque, beat Nadal on tour. Now, I, I, I think you remember this, John, but I, I recruited Alex, and he came to UC Irvine for me, and then I, I remember thinking, I got this guy, and all of a sudden I find out he's going to San Diego State, and John Nelson nabbed him, and uh, turned out to be a heck. That guy was a workhorse, wasn't he? He was, he was very unique. He was like 22 years old, uh, going to school in Germany, and they said, you'll never be a great tennis player, but you're good enough to get a scholarship. So he came over to, to uh, California, he went to Pepperdine, UCLA, Irvine, and San Diego State, and uh, we were very fortunate to get him. He uh, blossomed while he played for us, and uh, very unique individual. We can talk more about him later yeah. if you want. He's, uh, he's been a blessing for me and my programs. Well, I'll tell you right now, people listening, that alone right there is a nugget because, you know, parents, players, and coaches uh, – People told him he wouldn't amount to much, and the guy goes on tour and beats Nadal. 
I don't know how many people I've bumped into, uh, even as juniors, and they have a ton of talent. And people say, man, you got a lot of talent. But they only see themselves as their current level. And then they see other people a little bit better than they are. And they think, well, if I get better, those people are going to get better. So I'm never going to get better than those people. Everybody has a learning curve. Everybody progresses at different rates. And so never sell yourself short. You work hard, stuff happens, and you put yourself under the right coach. And that's what happened with uh, John and Alex. So uh, good job. Uh, I appreciate it. Funny story. After he started working uh, with me, I do a lot of one-on-ones. I've always taken pride in player development. Yeah. After a few months, he asked me how good he thought he, I, I thought he could be. And uh, he was about 190 in Germany at 22 years old, which is, you know, okay, a solid ranking. And he says, how good do you think I could be? And I said, well, you have the potential to be top 100. Well, he's thinking in Germany, top 100, they're pretty good players. And yeah. then the more I talked, he realized I was talking about the world. And he goes, Coach, you don't know anything about tennis. And I started laughing. <laughs> All right. I, didn't, I don't know anything about tennis. I'm t- I didn't say you're there now. You have that kind of potential yeah well the day he broke top 100 in the world i called him and had to tell him i told you so but not only did he beat nadal and he beats quite a few guys top 10 in the world he beat the uh, brian twins the most successful doubles team of all time yeah so he had some mr uh, mr davis cup in germany nice so, yeah he was but he he, he 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 had the drive and he wanted to learn and he had all the makings. He was hard-headed, stubborn, but you and I both know great athletes, successful people tend to be stubborn to some degree, but they're looking to learn and improve. Right. So he had it all. That's great. That's great. Well, uh, going further here, uh, John was an All-American at Cal State uh, University uh, Hayward, um, and then he went on to get his uh, master's degree at Stanford, so he's uh, he's a pretty sharp guy, too. So. Uh, John is a third-degree black belt in jiu-jitsu and uh, uses martial arts in his coaching. And this is the point of our discussion today. And uh, for people to understand, it's not a force thing. It's not like you think, how can I inject this? It's just a way of life. It's the way you think about things, Um, you know, uh, not only for mental, but just, uh, you know, uh, how our bodies move, efficiency. And we're going to get into all that. one thing that uh, just wanted maybe to touch on just a little bit, as a junior, you grew up in Northern Cal, right? Yes. yes. And what was your junior experience like? You know, because everybody has a different path. I mean, you know, you went to a junior college, then you went to, you know, four-year, and then, then you went coaching, and then you've been involved in coaching a lot of players that, you know, were successful in college, then on tour, and you've been doing it for a long time, well-respected. So everybody has a different path. What was it like when you were a junior? Well, I didn't, the first, first year of uh, 16s was the first time I ever played a tournament. We played like three tournaments, my twin brother and I. The second year of, um, excuse me, it was the second year of 16s is when I started playing tournaments, really. And uh, my first year of 18s, I played every tournament and got ranked 35 in NorCal. And my brother and I got ranked in doubles and we were competitors. We had been in the martial arts. We had played baseball. So we loved to compete. So behind the curve is, is an understatement as far as, uh, right. you know, I was more of a competitor than a tennis player when I started. I did not have great technique, did not have a lot of lessons. And uh, so I did a lot of problem solving on my own. I watched a lot of film and just learned to uh, 
play by watching others, and partly a lot of what I learned was in the martial arts. Yeah. I started that when I was 12. Okay. So. Yeah, see, everybody out there, there's, there's different pathways. Well, let's get into it. Um, in his book, uh, Sensei Tennis, um, uh, John, if you can just uh, give an overview maybe of why you wrote the book and generally what people can expect. We'll get into the details, but what can people expect when they get the copy? You know, it, it is a, it's, one of the things I keep talking about is the lowest common denominator. And the martial arts have been around for thousands of years. And I've studied six different arts, and I kept hearing the same thing as far as the balance, the movement, the focus, the concentration. And it was the same in every sport. And so, so many people, they it said, this is so simple. I wish I'd known this earlier. It's just about being on balance, using your body, you know. I mean, when you mm-hmm. get into weaponry, most people pick up a weapon and they think you're hitting at people with the weapon. You're not. You're, it's an extension of the body. It doesn't matter if it's a baseball bat, a golf club, a tennis racket. It's an extension of the body. It's not something that you're hitting at the ball with. The ball is actually in the way. You're not trying to hit the ball because then you become focused. You, you've been in martial arts. You know when you're striking, you're not aiming at a board or at the body. You're, you're through it. Through it. Yeah, you got to go through and, it. Uh, Men- so men- mentally, you know, not, not only physically, but mentally you have to go through it. <laughs> Uh, yes, if you, uh, when I'm holding focus pads, I do it with the team, but I'll have someone holding focus pads, and I'll have guys come up and strike it with the heel palm strike so they don't hurt their, you know, hurt their wrist or something, and then I'll put my hand uh, about eight inches behind the focus pad, and I'll say, I don't want you to hit the pad, I want you to hit my hand, and they, the guy holding the pad is shocked by the difference in, in power. Yeah. And what did we change? We changed their mind. We didn't change, I didn't change their technique at all. I changed where the focus of energy was. It was through the target. Yes. So I, a lot of people kept telling me, you know, I've never heard this. This is different. This is, but it's so simple. It's just common sense, you know, and mm. it, it is applied physics. I always tell my guys, you know, you got to live by the laws of physics. Once you can walk on water, you don't need to listen to me anymore. But, <laughs> uh, so I had so many people telling me that over the years and towards the end of my career, I was thinking, you know, it'd be fun to get it out there. And I was blessed. Mark Beatty, who had been a lawyer and got into tennis, he started coming around the program and we're talking one day and he had already written a book and uh, from Go to Pro. And so uh, for two years, he sat around the tennis courts. I do one-on-one lessons in the morning and team in the afternoon and he would take notes on everything and he questioned me why are you teaching this i haven't heard this is this you know why is this different and it was great because it was kind of for me to sit down and when we started doing it, it was kind of unbelievable how much information but then to put it down hopefully in a simple way that people can relate to so it was it's been a labor of love let me tell you <laughs> that's great so he, he's like your amanuensis man he's like uh you know you're uh, that's a, that's the word for the day, by the way. Uh, uh, he's your, like your secretary, and he, you know a lot of times I'll, I'll be given a lesson. I'll think, man, that was a good one. Uh, that was a good drill I just thought of, or this, and you forget to write it down, or you forget to you know take notes of something. So he was there to to kind of get that going for you. Oh yeah, he was great, and he'd been around tennis and been around like Pat Cash, been around successful people, and her yeah. Different semantics, and you know yourself, there are a lot of great coaches out there, and sometimes we all use different semantics, how we explain something. But uh, one of the goals I've always tried to do is simplify the game, you know, the approach. And I had a coach that worked with us at 
Kenyatta College and Rich Anderson. And oh, yeah. Literally dealt with people as, as an educator. They expect you to get A's in class, not that you're going to be given it. They expected you technically, mentally, physically, tactically to improve. And it was right when I was learning the martial arts. You know, Steve, the more you get into martial arts, you realize how much you don't know. And there's no cockiness or arrogance because if you underestimate someone <laughs> on the street, you're dead. Yeah. And since you are, you're never underestimated, and we expect everyone to know more than you, you become the ultimate peace lover. You're not out there, macho testosterone, to prove anything to anybody. You just, it's all problem solving. Yeah. They're doing this, well, you're doing this. So it, it's, the more I got into it in coaching and I'd talk about things and guys, you know, how guys on the team will question you. Yeah. And then you start verbalizing it. So you learn as you're coaching them on how to say it, you know. Right. Well, uh, we're going to get into chapter by chapter, but just a few points in each chapter. Uh, one of the important things, I think you said it off in the, in the intro, you talk about some, one of the fundamentals, you list them, and they're pretty much uh, chapter for chapter what the uh, fundamentals are. But you say mind is our best weapon you know, our open or our versus or our growth mindset versus fixed. And then you compare that to the Western mindset. Why don't you explain that a little bit? Well, the Western mindset, you know, I mean, obviously the Western culture is unbelievable and it's been very successful, but there's a lot of the egos and being number one and rankings and self-image and all that. And it's actually counterproductive. Um, People that are very successful tend to work hard. They're learning from the mistakes. And, you know, fear of failure actually holds so many people back because uh, if your self-image is at stake, gee, if I lose to this person, I'm no good. Well, fear inhibits you physically and mentally. So mindset has to be more, uh, it's a growth, uh, you know, how are you going to respond? And every point is an opportunity. And I always say, you know, uh, it takes courage to be good, and if you're doing what good players do, or good anybody, good businessmen in life, if you're doing what successful people do, are doing, you have a better chance of being successful. So the mindset is learn and grow and apply the principles, and some first time you apply them might not work, but I pat them on the back. You know, if they poach and lose the point, man, I'm, hey, I love it. It's a courage to poach. I love what you're doing. That's the way winners make it happen. And you know how that gets in people's minds when you're poaching a lot, moving around the net. Right. So I, the, the mindset, it's not about winning. And it's because you can't control. That's future. And as soon as you start talking about the future, you're not in the moment. Right. So it kind of uh, snowballs. It's like learn to be in the moment, do what you're supposed to do. And that's, <laughs> that's part of the, uh, like the physical, the uh, technical things I work on. Every single time you hit a shot, you better set up to go down the line. You better look like you're uh, going to the net so your energy is going through the ball. And you better hit it in your power zone. That's good footwork. It's not moving your feet 50 times between shots, you know. Right. It's getting over there and being on balance. And, it, you know, I look at other sports and you look at football. The quarterback rolls out. They're in position where they can throw it down the uh, – if they're right-handed down the right sideline. But then they can turn and throw it cross field in the last second. But if they roll out open, looking to their left or their right-handed, it's very hard at the last second before they get hit to turn and throw it to the right. I talked to volleyball coaches this, when they go up to spike. You know, if you literally are setting up to go to the right sideline if they're right-handed, and they can hit to the left corner at the last second. So the discipline is do what you should do every single time to the best of your ability. And the martial arts, as you know, teaches that. 
your sensei is always, every time you're kicking or striking or throwing or grappling, they're always saying, here, slide here, do this. So it's, it's just constant journey of learning, and that's the joy. You're, you have nothing to lose. You're getting better, and you're enjoying the journey. And as a kid, when you're having fun, time flies. you got to have fun with what you're doing. It can't be just monotony, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things, though, is that, you know, you mentioned about the, you know, to truly learn, you have to embrace actually learning, you know, and I think that's actually something yeah. that's lost in our culture. We talk about process over product, um, but to truly learn, uh, to truly learn and get better, you actually have to enjoy learning, and that's just part of the love of the sport. But I will say this, I'll, I'll jump ahead, I was going to mention this later, is in martial arts, though, um, and even you look at greatness when we talk um uh, angela duckworth talks about um when we talk about grit and when we talk about uh, deliberate practice you mentioned something similar to that in your book um but the whole idea is when people are excellent when they're uh just uh, let's say whether you're a musician or a or an artist or you know an athlete or whatever there is the mundane. It's just part of being excellent. You know, you have to do things over and over and over. And you, you have to learn, you, you have to learn in the long run that, hey, I'm doing this because I love this sport and I want to get the best I can, which means I got to hit, you know, I got to not only hit uh, overhead after overhead or serve after serve and return, etc. But, um, you know, even if I make mistakes, I just got to keep after it. So there, you know, there can be a bit of uh, a monotony about it. But you, it's oh, that's part of the process. That's part of the process. Yes, it's the, it, it is a grind at times, and some days you don't feel like getting off the couch and go getting beaten up at night in a dojo. Yeah. But out of respect, and you know, you do. That's the discipline, and by doing it, and you know, it is preparation. You're doing it for a reason. Yeah. And so, yeah, without a doubt, it's not always fun. I mean, right. it's just not. It's work at times. But you, 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 once you set your sight on something, you say, I'm going to do it, then you have to do the work. There's no shortcut ever. Yeah. You mentioned truly to truly compete, uh, you have to embrace the actual competing. And you mentioned that you love competing. And there's a uh, – how you touch on that? There's a, a gentleman uh, named Joe Ehrman, and he has a book called Inside Out Coaching. It's, it's, uh, I do a blog on it on my site. Um, but you know, actually the Latin word competire, you know, it's about competing and the best way. And I think you understand this extremely well, especially through martial arts, but I, you kind of, you kind of ooze this out when you were saying things is if you really enjoy competing, you, you actually look forward to the, the, the stuff that just makes you have to figure it out. Like in other words, sometimes, you know, some people want the easy way out or they don't want to play against this person because they don't want to have to deal with, you know, X, Y, Z factors. Well, like, for example, I'll have play, I'll players start at love 30 and they have to hold or they end up running some lines or they get one serve and they start at love 30 and they have to hold or you just create all these scenarios or they're playing and you go and then you go, what's the score? And the guy goes 30, 15. No, it's love 40. What? what? What do you mean? Well, sometimes in a match, the opponent gets the score wrong or there's something that screws up the score. And so, but they love competing. They go, you know what? Okay, I'll take that challenge, and I'm going to go after it. And, and the thing he talks about is in football where he uh, got his, uh, his uh, claim to fame was uh, he loved it when you, we always see it in, in, in sports like that or uh, 
even tennis, when they hug each other after a match, because it was a grind, because it was a battle, and they brought the best out of each other. That's true competition. When you say, you know what, bring it, man, because I want because when you bring it, I gotta play well. Well, that comes back to the mindset because you'll never play your best against play, lesser players. The better they play, you go, well, I'm not losing to you, so you just go to another level. What do I have to do? And that's the matches you remember your whole life are not the easy wins. It's the ones you win 7-6 in the third, and you adjust to their strategy. You get control, then they adjust. And that's what, you know, in martial arts and fighting, grappling, there's counters to counters to counters, and it's not one move. And if someone keeps nailing you with a technique or someone keeps beating you in the tennis court, well, instead of getting upset, you don't move correctly when they slice it wide of your forehand. You're moving parallel to the baseline, and you're, you know, you're reaching back trying to hit it, whatever. They're, they're doing you a favor. And you're right, in the dojo, there's a lot of give and take. So, um, you know, I tell you, hey, Steve, you're real close to this choke slide in here. And so <laughs> the they help each other. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's a lot of learning going on. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. So in Chapter 2, when you talk about discipline, purposeful practice, Duckworth calls it deliberate practice and a lot of the research she did. Um, and, again, I have a, a, something on the a blog on that. But when people are reading your book, you talk about, you know, calm, mind-focused um you know, from purposeful practice, uh, you talk about training slow. Why don't you, why don't you touch on those things? I think they're really, really good points. Well, you know, people, I, I use the analogy that if um, you got in the car and you drove four hours every day, drove around, well, where'd you go? Well, I spent four hours driving. Well, some people have a destination. You can get place in four hours. People play tennis that way. They go out in the court and co- coach as I hear three, four hours. Well, what you work on? And most of the time, they're doing things they like, and they're rallying in the backcourt. Yep. And I was a stickler. If they did short court, if they're not moving their feet, I'd say, okay, let's stop and go <laughs> run. You're not warmed up. Because if you can't move your feet, and when it's coming slow, what makes you think you're going to move it, you know, when it's coming fast? And if you can't, you got to become an actor. Every time you hit the ball, you got to convince your opponent you're hitting down the line. You know, and you should look like you're going to the net, so your energy's moving back into the ball. And if you're hitting in your power zone, you have great footwork. And if you're not doing when it's coming slow, and then when you move back, I don't want them hitting down the center, just rallying. I say, hey, go cross court, go down the line. You know, the Brian Twins did their warm-up when they were hitting in the doubles alley, you know, so it's very specific. Very And Bill Tillen's book, I think, is one of the earliest books that, match play and spin on the ball, he literally said, every single time you hit a ball, you need a specific spin, a specific target. And most people have no clue. They're just swinging at the ball. Are you hitting a lot under spin, top spin, hitting a driving shot, are you hitting, you know, angles? You know, what's your purpose? You're trying to hit wide, low, or high? Or are you hitting through the court because you've got a short ball? So I'm a stickler for practice because it's a waste of time just being on the court and hitting balls so we do with a ton of approach shot drills first volley drills and i try to make practice tougher than matches we do mental abuse drills where you're 20 overheads in a row if you miss an <laughs> overhead you're back to zero hey everybody out there listening when i'm coaching you man see this is this is why i do these things just like john man <laughs> i like it you know when Vosky was playing for me one day he is very you know he is he was a man. He's 22. He's very mature. 
And so we go, um, I said, today we're doing a seven drill. And he goes, what's that? And I go, you got to hit seven slicers in a row. And once you're done with that, you got to hit seven top spin serves in a row. And then you got to finish with seven flat. And he goes, oh, coach, I hit my serve over 120. Uh, I might miss one. And I go, you don't get it. I go, can you hit one in? He goes, yeah. I said, that is the secret. There's only one. Make a mental and physical commitment. But you know what his record now is? 28 flat serves in a row. Now that he's gone, now he's done playing on the the tour. But he yeah. got up to 28 flat serves. But you tell the guys if the if the you got to get to seven flat serves and you miss it, you'd be shocked on how many people miss on the seven serves. Oh yeah, you just start twentieth overhead because they relax, right? You know, or this is it, and it's just no, it's not it. It's just one. Make yeah, a commitment physically and mentally, and so when they're on the court, it's very specific the shots why, why are they hitting that shot what's the purpose behind it to run around hitting balls i think it's a waste of time you yeah know, it actually produces uh sloppy habits yeah you know, are you trying to buy time you try and take time away so as you know you're a good coach you, you do the same you everything has a purpose yeah, and that's uh, uh in my chat my podcast with craig o'shaughnessy that most people don't practice correctly and or they practice not according to actually what wins matches just this just the data out there you know for example long rallies are not what wins matches at a high level it's uh, zero to four is you know uh you know a lot of this uh, he's been going for dad over the last many years um you know the, most of the points are between zero and four you know the the uh the average so um and so you got to practice that way well what does that mean you got to try and look for you know a little more aggressive location and you know and for example we talk about c to c and then uh c to d etc or i mean d to a but uh anyways uh, that's for another day but you talk about training slow uh i know what you mean but maybe ex- uh, expound on that for people because i don't think people do that they, ex- they expect fast results fast Right. There's several ways to train slow. One, obviously, when you're, you're coached and you're feeding balls, you're just having them go slow and just, you know, hitting targets at half speed so they can feel it. And then I'll actually have them close their eyes and do things without hitting the ball. Then I'll have them, <laughs> I ask them that they're all supposed to keep journals, but they're all supposed to do mental imagery. And uh, instead of, you know, like people when they're doing the mental imagery, they'll get to a match point and they'll see themselves hitting an ace. And that's that cheap, quick. Yeah, I don't want to suffer. (laughs) As a player, I used to go to the high school by myself at night. At night, no lights. And I would play points in my mind. I'd certain volley. And every time the guy would hit a great shot down at my feet, and I'd have to half volley it deep, and then he'd hit a lot of the backhand corner, I'd pull that down. Man, I would get my butt kicked by an imaginary. But the guy was always hitting the smart shot. And I understood patterns and targets. And um, that's... I only played one year in Division Two at the singles and made it to the quarters. Ended up representing uh, the All-Star team, so they took the top eight to uh, Mexico. And I was not a great player. I just kind of a competitor that won with what I had. But trust me, I was doing a bounding program from a track coach. I did everything in my power to achieve goals. A lot of people say they want it. As you know, not many people are willing to do it. When you mm-hmm. set a goal, you are kind of consumed with it. <laughs> yeah. In Chapter 3, you say attitude, confidence. Uh, the, the chapter's on attitude, confidence, fearlessness, and pressure. And one thing I, I really like what you said in here was uh, don't wrap self-worth in your results, but in learning and giving your all to improve. I think that's a great point. 
Uh, maybe uh, that or some other things in that chapter you want to maybe point out. Well, attitude literally is how you want to look at things. You can have a positive attitude or a negative attitude. You, you can talk yourself into anything or talk yourself out of anything. You know, with all the studies of don't double fault or don't lose, obviously your <laughs> mind doesn't hear the double negative. And I said, have you ever, ever in your life been happy thinking about bad things? No. Well, why are you thinking about it? It's a choice. It yeah. literally is a choice. And you get to a point, it sounds weird, but it's like in your mind there's a door and someone's knocking on the door, and it's up to you if you're going to open it, open up the door and let them in. And when you're playing an opponent, nothing they say is going to be there to help you. <laughs> nothing. And in a competitive world, 99% of the things out there coming in are not there to help you. And if you your, your results are what you think, rankings what other people think. And if you're looking at rankings and, gee, if I get this win, all that stuff. So attitude has to – you've got to have a positive attitude, a positive expectation. Calmness, you've got to be calm. And you, the arrogance – people that are arrogant are insecure. They always come on too strong. They're trying to prove they're good. You never know when someone's really good in fighting until it's too late. They're not there with the <laughs> macho testosterone at right. you. And you know, you don't get a second chance. You make a mistake on the street. It's real street fighting. It's not sport. And so someone bumps into you and say, excuse me, didn't see you. You have nothing to prove to anybody. You want to go home, avoid conflict. But if it goes bad, it's the art of winning. The mm -hmm. attitude is you may hurt me. I'm winning. Someone breaks your nose, hey. You keep fighting, you know. If there's a knife, you sure as heck, you know, there's going to be blood. Yours is theirs, but you don't stop. And you, the knife in the right hand, you're not worried about dying or because fear inhibits you. You're not, you know, or you just literally are, you're doing this, so I'm doing this. And that's the thing the arts teach so well is there's always a solution. There's always a solution, and time has nothing to do with it. You're not in a hurry. You, you take your time. There's a calmness because you do have a solution. So the attitude has to be there, positive expectations. You have to prepare for every situation, and that's why the practice is so important. When you're playing guys that are six seven and they're hitting the heck out of the serve and the ball's bouncing over your head, or you're playing the guys that are so quick, every ball you hit and they're running around the court and everything comes back, you got to find a way to get them off balance. you got to find their pattern. So... Yeah, at, to me, your mind is by far your best weapon. It's problem-solving. Also, when you're not – your attitude's negative, you actually help your opponent. And you never aid the enemy, ever. Nothing out of your mouth should ever help your opponent, you know? Yeah. I mean, you could say nice shot and stuff, but if you're talking yourself down, they might be ready to tap out. They might not feel like playing today. They might right. be sick. And you just help them. Yeah. Someone's complaining, you help them. And now, oh, wait a minute, I can win today. And the one thing I have a good friend who's got a doctor from Stanford in psychology, and he says the one thing in psychology when you're helping people, the most important thing is give them hope. And that always stuck with me. Because when you have hope, then you, you stay in there. But if there's no hope, you quit. Yeah. Well, and there's all – there's so all, Attitude has a heck of it. Too. Yeah, in tennis, there's, there's always hope. There's no clock. I mean, there's always a chance. Exactly. You, you play one more exactly. point and the guy rolls his ankle. You're good, you know? I mean, there's always a chance. Yep, yep. And they might be up 5-0, and this happened before, and uh, 
they think it's over, they're monitoring the future, and you come back, now they're angry, and anger, anger can betray you if you don't channel the anger. You know, so yeah. yeah, there is, until the last point, you can still win it. And as the match wears on, if you're a competitor, you're only getting smarter. You're, you're reading their patterns, and you know you're where it's going to go, and you're getting used to the speed and everything. So Yeah. You mentioned a good little uh, uh, tidbit here. You say prior to the match, accept the day's conditions. You know, let's say, for example, you know, it's windy out here. Oh, man, I hate playing in the wind. Or it's a slow court, or this guy gets to everything, or he's known, or she's known for cheating, or whatever. And you just say, hey, you know, you plan ahead. What are you going to do about that stuff when it happens? And you just acknowledge it and say, hey, yeah. that, that's part of the gig. Yes, well, the wind, actually, if you're smart, you're using the wind. You're not right. fighting it. right. And if you, so you accept the win, they got to play it just as windy on your side as their side. So when you're playing on one side, the wind's either helping one way or another, and you're only going to use the win. You can't fight it because you're fighting the wind yourself and your opponent. You're done. You know, everything is helping you. And uh, so, yeah, you got to accept the conditions. And if someone cheats you, people do. It's unfortunate, but. You don't have to lose your cool about it. You can say, you can question them if you know it was in. You sure that ball was in? And, they, you know, if they're going to act that way, get an umpire. But nothing they can do can bother you. And once they know that, it's actually a compliment when people start getting into gamesmanship. Because, they're, see, they're literally telling you, I'm not good enough to beat you with my game. Yeah, I gotta I'm going to fi- try to cheat you and get you angry. Yeah, i got to figure something else out, yeah. Yeah, or they might not cheat you. They might accuse you of cheating, and you're a man of integrity, and all of a sudden they're calling you a cheat and that making a scene. You go, well, I, I didn't cheat. That ball was out. You know? Yeah. And so they will turn the tables on you. So preparation's a key. You've got to be ready for it. You've got to be ready for every type of game, every conditions, and uh, and then you, you welcome it, you know? I mean, you got to tell yourself, I love pressure. I love pressure. I love match points. But once you train that every point's match point, you don't let them serve until you're doggone ready to let them serve or, you know, to return it. And uh, that's that's the way you practice. Is it, It's so easy to say play every point like match point, but no one, rarely do people do it. you got to tune in for the point and relax. Tune in what's your plan, what's your, you know, where you're going to hit it, how are you going to win the point. Yeah, you uh... – you mentioned in uh, this is in chapter three. You mentioned tennis is not a game of perfection. Uh, you have to have permission to miss, you know, and then, uh, and I think that's a really good point about perfection because, for example, you said yourself, you know, you you weren't you know uh, necessarily known for your technique and everything. You just fought hard and thought you know thought hard, and uh, right. I think a lot of people get out there and, and I, it's, you know, when you train hard and you're, you're investing all this time and all this money and you, and you travel and all this stuff and you're working hard and you go, well, man, you know, I've got all this done. I expect so much in return. You, you still have to have that mindset. Like, you know what? Sometimes you're going to miss. Sometimes you're going to make mistakes. Sometimes you're going to lose. The, the key is, you know, you, you, you should actually take all the training you have and say, you know what? I deserve to win because I worked my butt off, but, and, or you know, I allow give yourself permission to play well, but you got to, like you said, give yourself permission to miss. At least do it the right way. Like don't miss in the net, miss long or something. The best players in the world miss, you know. And like in baseball, they say if you're batting at you know three hundred percent, you're missing seventy percent of the pitches, you know. So you're considered a great player if you can bat three hundred. I mean that's that's good hitting and tennis. You're not missing one, you know, 
70% of the time. So, so much of it is now what happens, how you choose to respond to it. Yeah. So you got to accept you're not perfect. They say out of 100 tennis matches, 10 you're going to zone, 10 you're going to play terrible. The other 80%, you're somewhere in between playing great and poorly. But a lot of times, finding a way to win is just you, you can't always play well, but you can always play smart. And that's the one thing most people do, don't do. They try to play great all the time. That's, that's a mistake. Just go out, compete, play your patterns, adjust to what's going on. It just There's a guarantee you can play smart until the last point. Yeah. No, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great point. Uh, I also really like you mentioned this idea of um, learning to hit targets regardless of the score. And that's, you know, that goes back to practice. It's just not, you know, brainless practice. It's like, look, man, why am I executing this pattern? And I, I, I'm going to give an example to people, but I want you to talk about this. This is exactly why Federer or other people can hit an angle forehand cross court on set point against them because they know how to hit targets. They see the ball. It's right there. It's right in the spot they've done a thousand times in practice. Then they hit that angle right off the court. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. Targets don't move. <laughs> so you don't have to rush. And it's, and as you know, People can only cover two-thirds of the court, two-thirds. So if they're over too tight on the net, obviously you can lob them. If they're back a little bit, the angles are going to kill them. And when you, once you start setting patterns, they start covering the two-thirds, and that's why when you're pounding deep, the drop shot works on people. And that's why, the, you know, most players play the patterns. It's human nature under pressure to play a pattern. The best players, though, set patterns, and then they change them on big points because they have the confidence to hit the target. And that's why hitting targets is just, it's the game. Because most people, someone comes to the net and they focus on the person at net and they're rushing. And some, a lot of times when you focus on someone, you hit to them. It's like trying to lob over someone's head. Unconsciously, they're your target and you'll hit to them. When you start lobbing the po- uh, points on the court, you're just seeing arc and it's going to land within four feet of the baseline, you know. And uh, so... I'm a stickler for targets, for depth. Depth kills and everything. Yeah. And so it's just the, the, the guy can't be part of the equation. You're just hitting targets, and if I keep hitting my serve wide, I eventually figure, Steve, you're going to be looking wide. So I don't need to look to see you're not going to be covering the tee on this one. Right. You know, And if I consistently pass cross court on big points, eventually, and you're diving around the court, you know, I'm knocking off volleys. I don't even look. I'm set up down the line. This time I'll hook around the outside, take it up the line, and I don't have to rush because no one's home. Right. So it kind of get, gets that person out of the picture. Yeah, and that's what you mean by off, one, off balance. One. That's what you mean by off balance. I tell people it's like a sales job. You, you know, you got to be able to hit a pattern, but it, it, once, they're, once they're suckered into that sales pitch, you go somewhere else. Exactly. And, you know, uh, you know this. I mean, you've done it and you coached it, but – when someone's serving really well, what do players do? They hold you up, they move around, because they're trying to get your mind on their side of the court. Well, when you're serving well, your mind is not on the other side of the court. It's up on the ball. Your focus going up. And I used to make Vosky, because he used to look over there and look over there, and he'd serve. And i say, no. I said, wait until they're set up, stand behind it. Then when you walk up to the line, bounce the ball, you already have your target. And once he did that, he told me, guys, top 10 in the world were asking what he was doing on a serve because that's how he made his living. He had a great serve. He'd set the point up with the serve. But 
when you're hitting targets, that guy's not part of the equation. That's why so many people serve so well when there's targets out there, and then you put an opponent over there, and their mind is down and looking around there. So, yeah, targets don't move. Hit targets, you're going to be pretty doggone good. Wait, uh, just so it's clear to people out there, when you say uh, hitting targets, but when you say when you start looking down and around, what do you mean by that? Oh, on your serve. You know, they're holding you up, so your mind now is focused on the other side of the court. Or when you're hitting a passing shot, your mind's on the other side of the court. It's all physics. If you do it right on your side, so on passing shots, you're hitting a target down the line or across court if you're lobbing. But they are not part of the equation. On the serve, like when you're serving, when people are serving at targets, they're not looking over there constantly. They're taking their time. They set up. They go up. They hit up. They see the arc in their mind, and they hit targets that way. But if you're constantly focusing on the target, well, point A is your racket, point B is a target, you're going to start hitting through it, getting it in the net a lot. So good players literally will try to get your mind on their side of the court when you're serving well just to disrupt your rhythm. Oh, oh, I get see Get your mind mean. thinking about them. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yep. Um, you mentioned, uh, I think this is a, uh, there's multiple topics here that I think people don't spend enough time with. And I've had to have several players, but I've, it's very obvious. I've had to work on this with them, but breathing, um, I think this is a, a hugely underdeveloped topic, but, um, what do you, uh, I'll let you kind of share what you, your thoughts on breathing, as you mentioned it in chapter seven. Okay, breathing, basically, people don't realize you've got to be able to relax. And most people carry tension in their upper chest, their neck, the hinge of the jaw. And when you focus on your breathing and you listen to it, and that's what meditation, I'm not, I'm a Christian, I'm not into the spiritual uh, side of, uh, you know, the Easter and all that. Right. But all meditation is, is learning to be in the moment. And when you're listening to your breathing, you're not thinking about a whole lot. And it calms yourself, and you check. Your shoulders are down, and you focus on your center. And uh, when you do the meditation or you're doing the mental imagery, you have to get yourself in a state of relaxation. But let's just say you play the heck of a point, and you run around. you gotta, you got to stand up and relax, focus on the breathing, and walk over and just exhale and still your mind. Concentration is a skill, but people don't really understand how to learn it, not learn how to do it. And concentration... Breathing is the beginning of it. You focus on your breathing, it stills your mind. And they've done studies. No one has concentration can last for hours. You tune in, you relax. You tune in, you relax. Jack Kramer said when he became, when he learned to concentrate is when he became a real tennis player. Uh, Jack Nicholas in golf, he would literally tune in to hit the shot, and then he'd relax. He'd talk to the crowd. And then before the next shot, he'd get there, he'd see he has a seven iron, he's got the wind, he's got this lie. You tune in, get the information, hit it. And anyone that tries to keep peak concentration, they pry their mind. And right. anyone yelling, concentrate, concentrate, all they do is try reading a book telling yourself to concentrate, concentrate. Or worrying about what was in the last chapter or how many pages you got to read. Learn to be in the moment. So the breathing, it helps calm you. Also, when you're relaxed you, and being, getting unbalanced and being relaxed, you like going dancing, you can't find the beat of the music if you're tight. Yeah. Well, every tennis shot, you have to time it. And so people don't understand balance and breathing is more important. That is a fundamental that people don't really focus on. But there's dynamic balance when you're moving, but you're on balance. And then there's static balance when you're standing there. You need to have both. You know, you've got to be able to move, get yourself back on balance. 
track athletes, when they come out of the blocks, are off balance. They run themselves back on balance, but they're falling in the beginning. And you watch the great athletes. They're falling as they start their move, but then they run their hips back underneath them. And you as a martial artist know your sensei was big about having your center underneath your hips, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, so ours. Better if it's ground, yeah. Yeah, the breathing. Sorry, what was that? Oh, I was gonna say the breathing. I know, for example, I had you know one player. You know who who it is. In fact, he coaches uh, he coaches some of the top women in the world right now. But um, he used to like almost hyperventilate, and I'd say, Chris, you know, hi Chris, if you're listening, uh, I'd say, hey, you know, you gotta you gotta learn how to uh, settle down your breathing and take deeper breaths and kind of be more uh, methodical, just kind of relaxed. Um, I had some guys who get real tight in a match, and I say, you know what helps you is talk you know, actually like call the score out, you know, it helps you breathe. You know, it's amazing. People just sitting there like at a desk and all of a sudden you find out you haven't breathed for the last five minutes because you're so focused on something, you know, and you get all tight in the shoulders. Anxiety. Yeah. So anxiety and they get short of breath. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, one of the, actually one of the things, uh, when I was, uh, at, uh, what I taught in a class on neuro, uh, I mean, psychoneuroimmunology was on diaphragmatic breathing. It's just learning how to do certain breathing techniques where you can not breathe through your chest, like you mentioned some people do, and learn how to breathe through your, you yeah. know, your diaphragm. But in tennis, it's you yeah. really do have to breathe. And I find that when, like, let's say, for example, here's a classic example, and, and I'm sure you've run into this, even in martial arts. Uh, when I would train, you know, my instructor would say, Steve, you got to relax. And I go, I am. And he goes, no, you're not. And I go, I am. And he goes, you know, you're not. And I go, okay, yeah, I'm not, you know. And uh, you you get exhausted if you're not relaxed. And so it's the same thing in tennis. I could, I remember this will happen. I'll take somebody on a tennis court and I'll warm them up and they're gassed in five minutes. And the reason why is because uh, particularly if it's like a first or second time I'm with them because they want to impress. They want to, they want to work hard to do it right. And, and, and because of that, the tension gasses them. Because you, you know how it is. When you're relaxed, you could go all day long and not be tired. And yes. so it's this whole idea of like when they're running on the court, a lot of people, they actually hold their breath during a point. And it's like when they're off the ball, when they're not hitting the ball, there should be some, especially sprinters, when they sprint, there's an explosion of air in and out. It's a quick uh, exchange. And same thing in tennis. After you hit a ball and you're gassed, boy, you better be sucking some air in quick and out in and out and getting that replenishment and uh you know when they learn how to do that then you can go for a long time because you can replenish yourself even when you're gassed yeah well breathing breathing from the diaphragm all of a sudden your shoulders like you said your sensei you need to tap your shoulders your shoulders are up well, yeah well anyone in the weight room knows you're weak when your shoulders are up. you got to have your shoulders down in a strong position you know so the breathing when you're talking about people you're right they don't look at it there's a real simple drill you can do a five count or seven but you Count in, do a five count in, hold for five, and then exhale. You do that twice, and and listen to the air as it's coming in. Listen to as when you exhale. Yes. Go in for the count of five, hold for five, and exhale, or seven. And uh, it's shocking. I say, how do you feel? I feel relaxed. Yeah. Between points, you know, and obviously when you switch sides, you can go to a deeper state of relaxation, and then you tune in before you go out. But that's the the mind and the body relaxing and then recovering. So yeah, you're 100 percent correct. I, you'd be shocked on how many people do hold their breaths. Yeah. What do you do in martial arts when you're striking? You're keying. Yeah. Right. Got to expel. You're forcing the air out. Yeah. Yes. 
Chapter 8, you talk about connectedness and visualization. I'd like to focus on the visualization because the connectedness you're talking, you know, uh, when people read the book, you're talking about how you, you know, uh, for example, we have a uniturn and how everything is solid from the, we, we call it the hoodie in, in, uh, in uh, Subak Do Mutaquan, but uh, yours is key. But you talked about visualization, and I think that's huge and, and very uh, minimally used these days. You talk about internal versus external external visualization or perspective why don't you go into visualization how you uh, maybe suggest it might be used i think you give some great examples well for visualization like uh, when we're doing the mental imagery uh, we get them in a deep state of relaxation and i talk to them literally about seeing themselves warming up and once they've worn up all the strokes then they do a pro shot drill and they step up down the line they're holding they literally see the shot, and on the approach shot, their opponent knows where the first shot's going, so they're always going to hit a good, pretty good shot off of it. So you have to split, but you see it in your mind's eye. You're not on the court. You know, one of the biggest wins at San Diego State, we took down Pepperdine, and there were three in the nation. We went sweet 16. We went off and did mental imagery, and we did uh, about 10 minutes of just in our own little world, and they came out and beat a really good team that had killed us earlier in the year. Um, and it's because we were detached from what the yelling and screaming and all the stuff going on. They were just in their own little world doing what they practice, the way they play. And that's the confidence, doing what you see yourself doing. And so the mental imagery, you see yourself doing it correctly in your mind's eye every single time. And you're not rushing and hitting or there's, there's a calmness. And you're just stroking, making that commitment before, during, and after the shot physically and mentally. And a lot of people don't see themselves committing after the shot. They're trying to run back to the center and go, why are you running back? You're losing the point. You're not hitting your target. <laughs> I tell people, <laughs> I go, I, I, I tell people, wherever you are, be there now. In other words, sometimes people hit a ball and like you said, they're, they're hitting it, but they're going somewhere else. And I go, there's no place to go. Cause if you don't hit that ball, right, you're going to lose the point anyway. So you exactly. got, you, you got to be yeah. balanced and focused where you are right at that point. Well, here's something though. So let's get let's get a more detail because I don't think a lot of people have ever used visual visualization. So, for example, you mentioned one in there about how about changing a bad habit. Let's say, for example, uh, somebody misses the ball uh, long and their face is open, and just the idea of being able to close their eyes and say, "Look, I'm going to actually envision myself hitting the outside of the ball with the tip of my racket yes. on the outside of the ball." As I'm going upward, and you visualize, I did that with a young girl this morning. I said, look, I want you to, because she was tending to be a little little jammed, and I said, I want you to visualize yourself trying to hit on the outside of the ball. Close your eyes, and just no swinging, just practice that. And I go, now, with your eyes closed, swing your racket and visualize that happening, and let's go back and let me hit you a couple balls. Boom, first ball outside of the ball. Yeah, that's the mind's eye, and that's you got the mental imagery when you're relaxing your own, you know, at home or wherever. But then the uh, mind's eye is what you're talking about, where you see yourself at impact, and it's it is applied physics. And wherever you make contact, it will go. The ball will go where you hit it. You can't get upset; it went where you aimed it. You know, <laughs> so if you're running back to the center, it went right where you hit it. You're aiming. Yeah. And uh, you're talking about the mind's eye, which is it's huge to be able to see what you're supposed to do because i'm telling you right now most people when they, you put them up at net you see a ball coming at someone hits the ball as hard as it can right at their belly button 
unless they're disciplined, they see themselves jumping back and turning, right? Right. You get a seasoned vet up there, and they have trained themselves. Both feet are on the ground, wide base. They're trained for the fastball. As soon as they see it coming, they're, they're, they're moving forward because anything stationary takes more time to get it moving. So there's a slight press. So it's like, oh, my God, it's coming right at me. So then you just step in with step to the side with one foot. You know, it's coming right at you, but if you step into the side with the outside foot, you're facing the ball. It's in front of the body. But it's just like a return of serve. Someone serves right at your body. You know how many people see themselves leaning and backing up, backpedaling and kind of lifting it, where the greats have trained themselves to step, you know, step out, turn their hips, catch the ball in front of them. So they've literally trained seeing a fastball come at them with their volley, with their return of serve. You know, you just come, come, you hit a serve and someone smacks, where's a great return? Where do they return? Well, it's deep down the middle. You know, why? Because that's high percentage tennis. Right. And if you don't train, coming down from that serve, sitting straight down so your spine is straight, shoulders are level, tennis with a low follow-through, almost like a half volley, it's shocking. Every ball goes back deep. Yeah. Because the ball's coming up, and if you're lifting, you're tilting, and you're coming up, your arm's coming up, and the ball's coming up, and it's hit hard, it's going to be a, it's either going to go out, or it's going to be a kind of a floater, and any good player's going to attack you. Yeah. So I do a lot of training in the mind's eye for the fastball. And if you're not trained for the fastball, you are in big-time trouble when you get to the next level. And at every level, you know there is another level. You yeah. never arrive. Yeah, you mentioned even using visualization and past losses. Like, you know, for example, you can walk off the court. Everybody's bummed. I get it, you know. And then it's But it's good to be able to sit there. You, okay, let's say you got a consolation match or the match tomorrow. You know, it's another match, another tournament or whatever. You say, okay, let's just revisit a couple of those shots. And it doesn't have to be the whole match, but you sit back there and you go, okay, I remember on that point I did this. And just close your eyes and, and, and re, reimagine yourself doing it properly. And, you know, that's a help. It literally can change between matches. I've done it with players. I did it myself. I played a guy, beat him. I was missing backhand volley after backhand volley. My friend had scouted me, saw I was missing. We go in the match. He hit everything in backhand volley. Couldn't miss. Why? I thought about it and made my adjustment. Yeah. You know, and I've had a ton of players do that. And you say, well, what was going on? Well, you're leaning or you're doing this. And it just gives, again, coming back to hope. They need to have hope. And once they have the solution... And that's why as coaches, we've got to give them away. We can't just – I'm not a rah-rah coach cheering you on. You can do it. i got to show you how to do it, technically, mentally, physically. And that's the fun part of coaching because not all players have all aspects. And as a good coach, you find the one area that's going to help them the most yeah. start off. And once they buy in, then you can go to the next. But if you try to hit them with 20 things, <laughs> you'll tune out quickly. Chapter 10, you talk about anticipation and, uh, well, and multiple other things, perception and reaction. I think this is a really important topic because I see it daily when people don't anticipate. I'll give a quick example, and then I want you to chime in because you talk about focus of attention range um, and some other things. I think this is great stuff. Um, for example, I'll work with people, and, and, and these are even, uh, uh, you know, whether they're college or juniors or even uh, club ladies. I have a lot of them that uh, they really want to get better at transition and, and attacking. And I'll, so I'll have a little game where they have to get in the net after two shots. You either have to win the point or get in the net. And it, it really pushes them, and they love it, you know. But the idea is most, the reason why you got to kind of force the issue. So the more you do it and the more reps you get, then you, then you become comfortable. And I said, well, look – 
if you see somebody on a stretch and they're off balance, and, and I know you talk about this a lot in the book, once you get somebody off balance, they take their hand off their two-hander and they don't have a good slice, you know that thing's short. You'd be amazed how many people are still on the baseline thinking, hey, I just hit a pretty good forehand. Whoops, you know, there's a short ball. They didn't anticipate a weak shot and get in and make the next ball. Um, so it's just anticipating, and a lot of it has to do with your ability, and we talked about this earlier when we spoke uh, during the week, was a lot of people don't anticipate because they don't actually, let's say, for example, if I come to net and I know I can hit an angle volley and I know you can hit a dipper on the passer, then I know at that level what you're capable of. So I know when I hit a certain shot what you're capable of, which means I have to be ready for that and then I can anticipate, etc. A lot of people aren't aware of things because, let's say, for example, if you never go to net, then you're not aware of what people pass because people don't pass because nobody goes to net. So it's it's being aware. Right. You have to have a certain skill set level in order to understand what people, your opponent, are capable of doing. If they've got a Western grip, they're not pulling that thing cross court. They're going to go down the line if they're late. And so they just the more they do it, they learn how to anticipate based on the ability of their opponent. So I think when you talk about anticipation, I think it's great stuff. And uh, you talk about a bunch of different types, like ball flight, spin, pace. Anyway, so go ahead and uh, maybe chat about a couple of the key points there. Okay, with anticipation, obviously at the higher levels, they they anticipate incredibly well because they know the angles, they know the percentages and stuff. You hit a good shot and the guy's late, he or she is late to get into the ball, they're probably going to lob or hit down the line if they're literally late, you know. Uh, If they go cross court, it's going to be off pace, you're on balance, you can still get over there. Uh, Two-shot pass, you come to the net, I dip the ball. You you know this, at most levels, most people cannot hit a a firm penetrating volley off a low ball. So we do a two-shot pass. We dip it, we move up. We don't give much angle at all because we give you an angle, then you take the angle, and then we're moving up. And uh, that's a big part of the game is just knowing where the ball's going to go. You know, if I know you're going to hit your overhead, you're one who likes to flip and hit the inside out overhead or where you like to serve. It's human nature under pressure to do what's comfortable. So by knowing what you're going to do, I'm moving before you hit it. I'm starting to move to that that spot. That is pressure will break the undisciplined mind down. You've got to be relentless. And so you don't hit a shot and wait to see if it comes back. At the next level, it is coming back. But once you see someone off balance, and you know as a martial artist, I don't care how strong someone is, you get them off balance, they're weak. And uh, that's one of the main things in fighting is we're getting you off balance, we're taking you to the ground, we're going to attack that way, that it's relentless pressure. You cannot let opportunities go by. You're talking about the most points are won within four shots. And if I'm trying to get comfortable and get grooved with you, I'm not a player. I'm gonna, I'm gonna come in, and I know if I serve you wide and you're late, you're probably going down the line with the return. You know, if I serve at your body and you tend to be leaning back away from it, you're gonna be at a floater down the line probably. So you just learn from experience. And as the match wears on, some people are funky and they are able to carve a ball. So you just put it in the computer. Okay, he when he's in trouble, he likes this shot. And so, so much of it's reading people, their patterns, but also understanding percentage tennis. Because if someone can beat you with low percentage tennis, trust me, that's not going to happen. And we're talking to win some points. They're not going to win a match by hitting winners the whole match. Just no one does it. Right. It's very rare. So, yeah. and you, 
yeah, you, you we practice with patterns, and we literally two shot pass drill. You dip it, you know, approach shot drill. Everything is situational, and so we learn to anticipate what they're going to do before they do it. And I'll sit there and I'll, you know, if they're not moving, I'll say go, go, because I want them moving forward. Winners make it happen. Right. And anyone that's afraid to go to the net, it's fear that's holding them back. Well, you know, we all got to face fear, and that's one of the things that helps you in life is face your fears, overcome them. You know, there was a study, I think it was Kramer's coach, that he told him when you're standing at the baseline, you have 20 degrees to hit to. When you're standing uh, just inside the service line, you have 30 degrees to hit to. And when you're three feet from the net, you have 120 degrees to hit to. So let me think about this. I got... 20 degrees from the baseline, 30 degrees just inside the service line, and 120 degrees. And the guy has half the amount of time there when I'm on the baseline. So why am I in the baseline trying to out-hit this person, you know? Right. And once you learn overheads, there's an attitude. You don't miss them. You know, you don't. You, you get to a point, you make your overheads. You, the 20 overhead drill, it's it slaps people around. You know, we'll do it where if you miss someone hits you, makes you hit a volley, and you miss it, you subtract an overhead. But if you miss an overhead, you're back to zero. And you don't go on to the next drill until you learn how to do this. It's one of the mental abuse drills. They hate me, but, it, you know, you're doing them a favor. I used to rather get beaten up in the dojo than if I ever I'm – a, I'm a, I love people. As I said, I'm a Christian. I love people. I was not a vicious person. But I was able to use it several times to subdue people until the police came. Didn't have to hurt them. Yeah. You know, but I, I – there was a solution. But I was calm and stuff. So – Yeah. People fight that way. People play tennis that way. They they have their patterns. They have their comfort zones. And once you understand what they like to do, I might set you up, Steve. If I know your favorite serves at the tee, and it's a huge point, and I want to win it. I might stand a half step out of the out wide. So you think I'm covering the wide? Serve. Right. Yeah. It's a huge point. Well, you're going to go to your favorite shot. So as you throw the ball up, I'll step over there, waiting for the tee serve. Because I'm anticipating you hitting the right shot. And the people say, well, what if well, what if Steve goes wide? Well, good for Steve. <laughs> <You know? laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, did, I, I, I made an educated guess. The more time you play out there, the more you learn on how to anticipate. But, yeah, it makes you so much quicker. And they perceive that they're always – wherever you hit, wherever they hit, you're there. Yeah, and that really, really bothers people. Well, and you know? what even even uh, even the club level, I tell people, look, do you like your forehand or your backhand better on a return? Well, then just move over and make them prove they can actually hit a slice down the tee. Otherwise, you got a forehand most of the time, you know, seventy five percent of the time, and you can hit the backhand if it goes there. But they can't hit a kicker on a second serve; they're not good enough to do that. So just sit there with a forehand ready right. on seventy five percent of your shots. But anticipation, you talk about multiple things, and I'll just kind of mention a few and we'll move on. But you talk, so just for people listening, anticipate the ball flight, the spin, the pace, the landing point, the trajectory, how it's going to bounce, um, knowing what an opponent's likely to do. They're capable of doing. That's what John was talking about, their pattern. And John also talks about a far, a focus of attention range, where beginners tend to focus on their side of the court. Intermediates tend to... uh, uh, they can bring, they can, they can get the focus when the ball's near the net, and the advanced players get the focus and the cues while the opponent's hitting, and the elite players can focus uh, at the ball 
the opponent cues and the shot characteristics. So, you know, we can see their grip. We know, hey, if they've got that grip, they're probably going to hit this kind of ball. Or maybe we see the spin on the ball or they know what we kind of hit, so we kind of know the tendencies. So, uh, you know, for people just to be aware that it's just not, you know, your anticipation isn't just, well, I might guess where they're going to hit the ball. It's really paying attention to the kind of the ball hit, where it's hit, what the per and you mentioned about looking at the person's racket and their forearm. And you can kind of, if you get a good feel for that, if you can look at their grip and their forearm, you know, you get an idea. I tell a lot of people, this is a, this is a no brainer. Most people, you know, at, at a lower level, when they come to net, a lot of, particularly if they have two hand backhand volleys, they have a forehand grip on that right hand. And when they reach up for a high yeah. backhand volley, that sucker's going cross court 99% of the time. <laughs> They can't put the ball down yeah. the line because they'd have to bend their wrist. And so when I tell you know guys and gals this, and I say, look, if you throw up a ball and they got a two-hander at net and they've got a bit of a forehand grip, it's going it's going to the backhand. I mean, it's going to go cross court. So just start running over there and pass them down the line. And they're like amazed. They're like, how'd you know that? Well, just look at it. Just try it. You know. So you anticipate you know those types of things. Yeah, like the ball, real quickly. If the ball's coming in low, well, physics, the angle of deflection, if it comes in low, it's going to stay low. If it's coming in steep, it's going to bounce high. Right. And so you move accordingly to the arc of the ball. And you talked about soft focus and hard. Soft focus, if I see you running wide for a ball, my soft focus sees that you're a little late, you're not quite on balance. As you go to hit, my focus is on the ball because you're a good player. And even though you're off balance, as you said, teaching that young lady, you, you can get around the outside of the ball and still hook the ball, right? Just because you're off balance doesn't mean it's coming, not coming back. It is coming back, and you're either going to lob it or carve it or whatever. And so the soft focus is you, you, you perceive their body, their positioning. If they're wide open with their hips and their shoulders, the chance of them hitting down the line and making it most times is like slim to nil. That's why you have to set up to go down the line with your hips and shoulders every time. I'm not talking about the feet. Sometimes the balls hit so fast, you hit them with the feet, and they call over the stance. But, man, I'm a stickler for the hips turning your shoulders first. Let the hips turn. And you learn that in the martial arts. You're not turning the shoulders. You're turning the core first. You know, the upper body will follow the lower body. So, yeah, your soft focus is you see what the body's doing. They're off balance, wide open, and then – hard focus at the moment of impact i'm watching where your your what your strings are doing yeah you mentioned this uh, very specific yeah you've mentioned this several times so i want to touch on this you said three keys to footwork setting up as if hitting down the line set up as if you're going to the net with your energy forward and hit or catch the ball in the power zone between the knees and the shoulders and I, yeah, I think you just made the clarification uh, uh, right there. You said when you mean down the line, you don't mean closed stance hitting down the line. What you mean is your upper body no. turned, and I call it the hallop. So I have a lot of my girls that I teach, uh, and I have I have slow motion stuff I compare on a program to Simona Hallop. I love Simona Hallop. She's a you know a little teeny person with a massive game, and you know because she's she's very efficient, you know, technically efficient. And uh, the way she turns and she's loaded up on that upper body with, you know, that hip, that hip turn and the shoulders turned a little bit. And uh, that's and so she can hit that down the line or cross court at will. And a lot of people, they're too open or they're taught, hey, I got to really crank these shoulders. Well, they're, they're not strong enough to get them around because the hips are too turned. You know, they're actually overturned and they can't get to the ball. So they're going to be late. Yeah. So, so I think you made a yeah. – I, I like the way you say that. You say you set up as if you're going to go down the line, but you don't have to. Um, and then you said set up no, as – No, Nadal is one of the 
Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, Nadal, you watch him. Someone hits down the middle of the court. He runs around the forehand, and he literally looks like he's going to hit inside out every single time. Then he can hook it and go to your backhand if you're a righty. Yeah. But he always sets up to go down the line. The best volleyer is you, you're an attacker. If someone's running at the net with their shoulders facing the net, there's no way in the world they're going to stick it down the line. They're nope. going to stick it cross court or hit a drop angle. Right, or their so, wrist or their wrist yeah, has to collapse to go down the line. Yeah. Yeah, which means it's a weak ball. Right. Yeah, they, I'm not saying they, it's impossible to hit there. They just can't hurt you. Right. Because you know if they're not on balance, anyways, they're going to hit a weak shot. That's a two shot pass. We're moving up anyways. But I, I've asked a lot of really good players. Almost every recruit I've ever coached, I had to ask them, tell me what good footwork is. Moving your feet real fast, setting up, what does that mean? And if you can't measure it, you don't need a coach telling you have good footwork. You should become the best actor or actress. And everywhere, I can't read you. I, you, all, you you're always there. You, I can't tell you if you're going down the line or cross court. So you don't need a coach or anybody telling if you have good footwork. Because there's moving your feet a lot of times. Well, there's a reason you move your feet. It's to get your body in position. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of players just – you watch them run to corner, corner to corner. They're good. You hit right down the middle, and they, oh, I don't have to work. It's like, are you kidding me? You should be working just as hard because now you can take control of the point. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a stickler for defining what footwork is. Yeah. What, you know, as you're saying, a young lady can hit the heck out of the ball. Bruce Lee, one of the most famous martial arts of all time, is 5'7", weighed 135. He could take a one-inch punch, punch and knock a two hundred pound man back in a chair. <laughs> and it's so it's he goes from totally relaxed, the hip rotation, the shoulders follow, but it comes from the foot. The sensei used to tell us from the from the little toe all this way through the fist to the impact, it's tight. But before that it is loose. Yeah. And that is when you tighten up your muscles shorten. That's physiology. So if your muscles shorten before you hit it, you've lost power. And you you know, you lost timing because you're tight. So yeah. You go from a total relax to a total explosion. And if you're tight, you're actually using muscles on the wrong side, the antagonistic muscles, actually slow down your body rotation. So you only use the muscles you need. So that's that whole set up and let go, hit yeah. through the ball. I have the guys throw rackets out in the field a lot. Yeah. Forehands, backhands, serves, and they'll come back and they go, I've never hit the ball this way. And I say, because you're not hitting the ball, you're throwing the racket. The ball's just in the way. So it, it literally is applied physics. Yeah, I like doing that. You take a, like I actually did that today. I had uh, someone, uh, this this young uh, little girl. I, I wanted her to. She can throw the ball. She can throw a football. She can throw it. And I said, but when she serves, she doesn't. It's like a different motion. I said, no, man. Let's go out here and throw your racket. So we threw it. You know, and it's it's the same. You know, same principle. You say the second thing is you go set up as if you're going to net with the energy forward. Maybe describe that right. for people. Instead of falling backwards. Instead of falling backwards as you hit or going off the court, you know, in the way you're running or trying to recover back to the center. If I said throw it over the net and I'm standing in the net and Steve, I want you to hit me with your racket and hurt me with it. You wouldn't be falling back to the center of the court or falling backwards. You would literally, the energy is focused through. And I'm a stickler for targets. We have zone one, which is a foot over the net. Mm -hmm. Zone two is about three feet over the net that you're aiming at targets you're not aiming at the court the end target you're hitting targets because net clearance is, uh, is equal to depth nc equals d yep and uh so if you hit zone two which is three feet over the net they're in the baseline well guess what the ball's going to go deep if they're off a net you better not be hitting zone two because it's <laughs> three feet over the net you're not going to miss many volleys you hit zone one 
but you have to be specific in the energy of where it's going. Like I was saying on the focus pad, you're not hitting the pad, you're hitting through it. So it's shocking the difference when people focus the energy when they're throwing a racket out in the field. The only thing where you got to be careful, you have a line of people throwing the rackets. A lot of people, as you said, they open their shoulders up and their hips, and the racket literally goes almost 90 degrees right or left. It's scary. <laughs> they have everybody. Oh, <laughs> uh, you laugh. It's scary. So I stand out there far enough away. Yeah. I said, I want you to envision I'm like 20 feet ahead of you right in front of me. And I get people pissed at me. I say, try to hit me. Try to hit me with your racket. But they, they throw it and they throw it like a helicopter. They're not throwing it like a spear. Yeah. And they release. And now you're talking about hitting the outside of the ball. That's racket hit speed. And most people don't understand about getting around the outside of the ball. They're hitting the back of it. And any angle of deflection, the ball goes off the court. The best players understand how to get racket hit speed, get around the ball or inside of the ball. You know, but that's that gives topspin. That gives control. Right. Well, as we're heading towards the end, uh, you know, I just suggest people get uh, John Nelson's uh, Sensei Tennis and uh, and and read all this. But one of the things I do want to uh, touch on before we stop, because I think it's uh, this is even in my podcast with uh, Craig O'Shaughnessy, is the return, the serve and return of the two most important shots. And the way you even say it is, you know, it's one hundred percent of the time those shots are hit every single point. You don't always hit a backhand. You yeah. don't, you know, you don't always hit a forehand. You don't always hit a volley, but you always hit a serve and a return, unless the guy double faults, but uh, or the girl double faults. But um, the uh, is the return, and uh, that it's a critical shot, and people do not practice it enough. It's just kind of the add-on at the end of practice sometimes. And uh, why don't you give a couple of your key points about the return? I thought it was really good in terms of the use of the hip or. Yeah, the return serve, basically, when you're, you, as the ball is tossed up, you take a step in, and then you split. So the energy is actually moving slightly forward. Like, you're going to run a race. Someone absolutely stationary is going to be slower to react than someone has a slight lean or press, right? Yep. So you have a little press forward. You're always going to move perpendicular to a wide ball. But it's the hip turn and stepping with the outside foot that will uh, get your racket. And your hands, your elbows are in front of you. So as you turn your hips, your hands are still right in front of you. You're not reaching back. If I threw a ball down to you in front of you, Steve, and asked you to catch it, your palm would be down, right? Well, you just literally turn your hips. The hands, you're already in the ready position. And when you turn your hips left or right, and I ask players, if I ask you run a race left or right, and I point left or right, how would you move? They all turn their hips first, and they take the outside step. And I go... I need that, and I need your back absolutely perpendicular. Because when your shoulder or your spine's perpendicular, your shoulders are parallel to the ground; they're level. And when the ball is hit, you are literally just turning back through the ball. The fastest serves, you're not trying to hit; you're blocking right through the center of the ball. A great drill that Vosky used it when he was playing Davis Cup. He told me he made the coaches do it before all of his matches. Is I feed the ball out of the air, and you can start them up near the service line and then move them back to the baseline. If they see a straight line of ball coming at them, they sit down, look like they're going to catch it, and they just turn their hip. And I literally ask people to hit me in the chest because I want them aiming right at the middle of the court, and if I step out of the way, the ball will go all the way to the baseline. But that drill works shockingly well. A lot of people tilt their, their spine, and if, you're, if your shoulders are tilted up, the ball's coming up off the ground. And then so you're you're coming up, the ball's coming up. There's no way in the world you can hit a good return. You have the face closed. 
describe that. Yeah. Describe the drill again. So let's say you're the coach and then there's a player, right? So what does the coach do? Coach stands, you can, depending on, you, you can stand at the net or at the service line and you feed balls. The guys used to love to try to hit me and they put the ball pretty dang good hard. So I got to move back to the service line. But you can start off at the net, but you hit a straight line ball. You mean, in other words, you're not, you're, you're not serving it not down. Nothing. You're not serving it down into the service box. No, no, box. no. I'm, I'm hitting a forehand absolutely level. Oh, okay. I'm hitting a forehand level. And uh, they're literally turning their hips. Their hands are still in front, so they look like they're going to catch it. And when the ball gets there, they just turn their hips. But they got to maintain the balance. I want you on balance before, during, and afterwards. It's shocking how well it works. And they got to aim right down the middle because you, the best players in the world, they're they're aiming on the first serves. They're aiming right down the middle of the court. If yeah. they're late, they can hit a winner up the line. Yeah, if deep middle. If they're too early, they can hit a winner cross court. But to try to hit. You know, a 120-mile-an-hour serve, you got less than half a second. 100-mile-an-hour serve, you got less than half a second. Trying to hit a target down the line is foolish. You want to get it back deep. And if you're any good and you can do that, you literally you hit deep down the middle. A lot of servers will play up on the ball. Now you're attacking them. You're all over it. And the fastest way to break someone's will is break their serve. And sometimes their strength is a weakness because they're used to – you know, winning a lot of points. And once you get everything, start getting everything back, it's amazing how it breaks people down. But, yeah, you literally, you have a wide base. As they throw the ball up, you just step in, turn the hips. Your elbows are in front of you, not by your side, just like volleys. You know this in martial arts, but when your elbows are back behind you, you're physically weak. Your elbows mm-hmm. got to be in front of you. As you turn, you're waiting to catch the ball, and you just turn the hips, and you hit straight through it. Right through, I ask them to hit me in the chest. I need a specific target. They're not trying to lift it. They're not trying to hit down. They're trying to hit level. And the ball, I'll step out of the way. It'll land right at the baseline. So then I'll start serving to them easy, and they'll turn their hips, and they're with the palm down, their face is down a little bit, and they'll just turn their hips. <clears throat> they're not doing anything. And that puts so much pressure because every ball, I ask you, if I give you a baseball mitt, Steve, and ask you to catch most serves, you could get catch most of them. But if you try to reach back and swing at them, there's right. no way in heck you could do it consistently. Right. So we, we we literally train for the fastest ball, and that's one of the things, the lowest common denominator. I was fortunate at San Diego State, Tony Gwynn was in the next office. <laughs> Ted Williams passed on, and who, yeah. was on the, who was on the news? It was Ted Williams, I mean, uh, Tony Gwynn. Yeah. And I, I watched the documentary. They both trained their eyes for the fast ball. So I have a stickler for training on the ground strokes, volleys, half volleys. You turn a serve for the fastest ball. And you're talking about imagery. We see the fastest ball coming. And if you have time, now you move up. You use time. And they go, I can't overpower them. And when I try to give off base, a guy steps in the court and attacks me. No one wants to play you then. But if you're not really trained for the fastball, and that, that, the drill out of the air, the service return drill, at the lower levels, you're not hitting real hard, you know. And you can literally, if you want, just stand next to them, just toss the ball in the air and have them hit right over the middle of the court. So at the, each level, there is, a, you know, but right. with the good players, you can hit the heck out of it. Right. And you can make them move wide a little bit. they got to move perpendicular. they got to keep their butt low so their spine stays straight and level. Yeah. So it's just it's a great drill, and anyone that's ever used it loves it. 
Well, let me do this. You're, uh, you're, you need a drink of water, I think, but uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're coughing there. Hey, uh, uh, I ask all my, uh, my guests on my show, um, and someday I'm going to compile, a, uh, probably, you know, write a chapter on this, but, um, if you had to give the top five characteristics, the top five characteristics of a, of a, of a champion, uh, what would those be? Number one for recruiting, I always look for the drive, the uh, the drive to excel. Uh, I would say I tell my athletes, you can put a Ferrari there with no gas, not going anywhere. I don't care what kind of potential it has. The gas is the drive. They have to have that drive. Yeah, I used to get players that weren't always developed, and they have a chip on the shoulder, and they go, I can beat this people. I look for the drive. I look for a moral compass because you need integrity because not only is it a game of integrity – but you got to be honest with yourself. You can't kid yourself. If you don't believe in your heart you're worthy, you're not. Mm. And it's not better than other people. But if you haven't done the work and I haven't trained for a lefty pulling me out wide in my backhand, well, I can't get upset because there are lefties out there that can do that, right? Right. So I look for uh, the work ethic. I look for um, – I've never had a player excel that wasn't a, uh, a good student, conscientious. And I don't, not straight A's. Most of them are A's and B's. They're always, tennis always tends to have the highest GPAs, you know, in most programs. Yep. But I want self-reliant, independent people, you know, and I want them to look within for the, uh, uh, for the solution to problems. And when their eyes are off the court looking for solutions, you're in trouble. You know, that's part of your job is to prepare them. So I'd say the drive, the, you know, that chip on the shoulder, that's the gas. That's going to make the Ferrari go. The integrity, the work ethic, the um, smarts, you know, being analytical. And to be honest, I think uh, the people that just have a joy of competing. You know, I mentioned earlier, I have an identical twin brother, and I'm telling you what, anyone that has an identical twin brother, you compete in everything you've ever done in your life. You go out for an easy jog next time, thing you know he's running harder and you're beating him. And <laughs> hey, let's back off. I don't feel like running today. And he goes, you can back off. And he goes ahead. Next time he's feeling it. And I, he goes, let's back off a little. We're going a little too fast. No, no, you can back off. And, you know, and just, it's like, no way. I'm not going to lose to you. And it just pushes you. So I, I want people that have fun to get it. Competition isn't beating other people. Every time you compete, it's an opportunity to learn about yourself, the mastery. And when you have fun, what are kids? Time flies when you're having fun because you're in the moment. Yeah. And you keep going back to concentration. So I don't know. I think that's five. But <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. I just got a quick question though before we end. Is so, but when you when uh, when Jeff would say your brother would say, hey, no, I'm not. I, I, you know, I'm gonna one up you and you say no man i'm gonna beat you aren't you saying it's, it's just kind of a joke but it's like you're kind of like talking to yourself it's like saying yeah i'm gonna beat myself no i'm gonna beat you no that is that is myself you know with an identical well, twin problem because yeah. yeah we're identical so you know we, you have someone that has the same basic build size strength and it's it's a mind thing you yeah know? And all that's of a funny you go well why am i not feeling it and he he wants to do it or why am i feeling it today and he's not feeling it, but yeah. it didn't matter. <laughs> Something in you, the pride says, "No, no, <laughs> I'm not losing to you." That's too but funny. You know, the Brian, last thing, the, the, the one thing I'll say: the Brian twins were very smart. They never competed with each other. They took turns defaulting in the finals or whatever in tournaments. 
Yeah. And my brother and I didn't, and we'd have to play each other in challenge matches or tournaments. It would destroy the whoever lost their confidence for some time. Almost every year in college, whoever won the first challenge match played ahead of the other one the whole year. And uh. the very next year, the one that was played below, you know, not as high, was so determined and on fire would beat him and would destroy the other one's confidence. And it's funny, I could lose to anybody else, never affected me. Losing my brother really bugged me. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> so, but, but you got to love it. I mean, I love to compete in anything. Yeah. It's just fun. That's you know, great. And it's not a pride thing, I'm better than others. It's just, hey, let's lay it on the line. That's great. Well, uh, John, it's been a blast reconnecting with you and uh, just going over this. I'm so appreciative of you coming on the show. And, uh, you know, for people to, you know, grab his book, uh, Sensei Tennis, Martial Arts, and more in the Mastery of, uh, in the mastery of Tennis. So, um, you know, I, you did a great job with it, brought out some really good things. And the one thing um, at the beginning when I asked him about it, kind of an overview of it, it's the kind of book where you, you can, it's, uh, you can like a pick one chapter and just read it. And, and they're pretty short reads. And it's more of a, you might say, a, a just a how-to, you know, you say, look, I, hey, I, I want to read something about my return. Just, you know, and you read that chapter. In other words, you don't have to do it in sequence. You can just kind of pick and kind of dip in and get out and that type of thing. So that's a that's a good aspect of the book. So, so John, thanks, thanks a oh, ton. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a ton for coming on. And uh, um, What's your next endeavor in life? I know you said you're kind of helping volunteer and do a lot of things, so that's great. I love helping people. I'm blessed. I think God's got other plans for me, so wherever I'm led, I'm going to have fun. But I definitely enjoy the journey, and I'm stuck in paradise. Mary prayers when I die, I don't have far to go. Yeah, so. <laughs> folks, he, he, live, he lives in he lives in Hawaii. That's why. So, all right. Well. Hey, you've been listening to the Coach Steve Clark PhD show with uh, former nationally recognized college coach and now an author, John Nelson. Be sure to like and share the podcast and my website with your friends at coachstevecluckphd.com. Uh, there you'll find blogs, podcasts, resources, video discussion, and more, including uh, including Wilson Rackets uh, and Collins Company, Court Products, and Aero Concrete and Asphalt Specialties uh, of Spokane. I really appreciate their support. I also welcome uh, your comments and questions, and you can reach me at steve at coachsteveclarkphd.com. I'll just leave with uh, one more thought here. Um, when I was training in martial arts, so I'll, I'll just kind of leave with that kind of uh, uh, quote or thought, is, you know, we used to tell our students, because I used to run a couple uh, studios um, uh, myself, but uh, when we uh, we talked to our students who wanted to be in our art, it, we don't have a black belt. It was a, a, a midnight blue in Subak Do. Was, uh, it was called. It was a midnight blue. Um, there's a reason for that, but I won't go into that. But if you uh, if you want to be a don, in other words, if you want to be a, a black belt or a midnight blue, act like one now. In other words, if you want to be there, you have to act like it now. So in tennis, for example, if you want to be at this level. Do the things those people at that level do now. Um, one last thought is uh, Martin Luther King Jr. used to say, we must accept finite disappointment but never lose infinite hope. And sometimes I tell people it's okay to be disappointed, but just don't be discouraged when you're on the tennis court. There's going to be disappointments, but don't be discouraged. So thanks again uh, for tuning in and uh, look forward to talking to you next time. And as I say every time, let her rip. Let her rip.